This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court wrapped up its 2020-2021 term on Thursday, and it went out with a bang, issuing 6-3 decisions in high-profile cases involving voting rights and donor disclosure rules. On their way out of town, the justices announced that they would hear next term a case out of Maine involving public funding for religious schools, but they would not hear the case of a Washington florist who declined to provide custom floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding. Joining me to hash over the term that just ended is SCOTUS Blog's publisher, Tom Goldstein. Tom, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the 35,000 foot level. There's been a lot of discussion even before the term ended about what to make of the October term 2020, the formal name for the term. Um, What's your takeaway about this term in the Roberts Court? I think this is a term where we're going to look back and see it was turning a corner. This is the first term for Amy Coney Barrett, it is the first term of a 6-3 majority. It's a term where the court was dealing with a lot of emergency stuff, both with respect to the presidential election, which seems like it was a million years ago now. And that also- was this term, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all of the COVID-related emergencies. And so I think the, the court was uh, focusing on a lot of urgent matters and also settling into its new patterns. It'll be the coming terms that really, really, really have the biggest marked historic impact. Yeah, so we'll talk about the the upcoming terms. When you look back at this term, what do you think are going to be the most significant decisions and why? I think we'll remember this term for the First Amendment, both with respect to speech and also religion. I think that Americans for Prosperity, the case uh, decided on the last day of the term, really uh, restricting disclosure requirements where a state wants to know who's donating to an organization that's going to have big sweeping implications, I think, probably in campaign finance law down the road and is a really bad sign for people who want to um, have greater transparency in elections because the Supreme Court is saying that you have an associational right essentially to keep your uh, contribution secret. It hasn't turned to the campaign finance context, but that seems inevitable. We also had the cheerleader case. And while There was nothing huge about the case. The court decides that there's a balance and if students engage in off-campus speech that's uh, bullying, harassing, threatening the teachers and the like, it can be regulated, but otherwise it can't. So it's a a moderate decision. Nonetheless, you know, school speech, student speech, off-campus speech is such a huge issue and affects so many people. But probably the biggest effect that we'll see from this term's decisions will probably be about religion. Uh, the court began a sharp turn away from its prior doctrine, which said that religious organizations have to comply with neutral uh, laws that apply to everybody else uh, on equal terms, and instead started to articulate principles involving religious organizations needing accommodations, and at the very least, what we call most favored nation, they have to be treated as well as any conceivable other business. We saw this in the COVID context. 
where in several emergency orders, the court forbade states from restricting religious services because there were other businesses, for example, that could have their customers come in. And also in the Fulton same-sex uh, foster care case, which was a very broad decision in terms of its majority, even the more liberal justices going along as they tried to like slow down the pace of the doctrinal changes, but nonetheless is a sign of things to come where one of the real projects of the Roberts Court is going to be to lower the separation while separating church and state. Where do you think the Arizona voting rights case falls in, in the sort of list of significant cases? I, I suppose I do think that it's important, but maybe I thought it was inevitable. Uh, you know, it's been quite clear that this court, uh, including because John Roberts, who was its pivotal fifth vote before the court shifted one more seat to the right, uh, has had, you know, real doubts about the Voting Rights Act. And so in this term, it was pretty obvious that the court was going to uphold the provisions of Arizona law that were at issue that nobody really seemed to doubt that. But the question was, how sweeping is its ruling? And there is a lot of very broad language that says basically, look, if, if it's hard to vote, tough. That is not going to be racial discrimination, which is effectively what the Voting Rights Act is targeted at. And so efforts to uh, attack neutral law and facially neutral laws on the ground that they have a disproportionate effect on minorities, even if not intended to do so, are you know, very, very, very tough now. And so that will be consequential. If you think about the laws in Georgia and in Texas and in other places in the South where minority communities are quite concerned about this new raft of Republican legislative enactments. Um, and it'll be quite a challenge for the Biden administration as it tries to combat them because it puts them in the box of having to prove intentional racial discrimination. That is to say that the Georgia or Texas legislatures really had, um, you know, and it wanted to harm minority voting participation. And that's a very tough case to make out. The SCOTUS blog statistics are out for the term. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh was in the majority 97% of the time. Yeah. And when the, the court wasn't uh, unanimous, he was in the majority 95% of the time. What do you make of that? He descended one time. I mean, it really shows you that, you know, when John Roberts is not even your center vote, when John Roberts has to be one of four liberal members of the court on ideological questions, and then you have to get somebody else, you know, the left is essentially toast, that it's, uh, you know, almost game over, that all that the left on the Supreme Court can do is try and slow down things uh, because they have no power whatsoever. Brett Kavanaugh is in, you know, one of three justices so far who seem to be pretty committed to being, you know, less aggressively conservative in changing the law. John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and so far Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, and so he is part of a, you know, one of three groups in the court, but, you know, in the sense that there are three more conservative justices who would be even more aggressive. But the fact that Brett Kavanaugh almost never dissents shows that the court is quite conservative. And then it also tells us something about him, and that is he's being pragmatic. He is not iconoclastic off doing his own thing. 
you do have like Justice Sotomayor, Justice Thomas writing their own separate opinions. Brett Kavanaugh is, is kind of an institutionalist like the Chief Justice. Uh, he wants to, I think, bring people together in decisions. It's just that the biggest implication is what it tells you about the ideology of the court. So with that knowledge, let's let's look ahead to not just next term as a whole, but three of the big cases that are already on tap next year and a fourth that's likely to be affirmative action. So you've got Mississippi abortion, New York gun rights, religious fun, uh, public funding for religious schools, and perhaps you know the challenge to Harvard's race race conscious admissions policy. You know, if Brett Kavanaugh is the the center of the court, what 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 do you see the court doing with, with some of those cases? Well, let's start with guns because when he was on the Court of Appeals, he wrote very strong pro Second Amendment. Uh, language. And so I think that we should really be looking for pretty strong statements by the Supreme Court about there being an individual right to bear arms that can, in certain contexts, include a right to carry a concealed firearm. Because I think the court stayed out of gun rights for a long time. When John Roberts was the pivotal vote on the court, or when Anthony Kennedy was, then conservatives had to be concerned that uh, they would lose the cases because they weren't sure where those votes were or they were confident that mm, uh, the, there really wasn't a strong Second Amendment sentiment. And so, and the conservatives I'm talking about were actually on the court itself because they just kept turning certain petitions down. The fact that the court finally took one of these cases once it has a 6-3 majority suggests to me that we are, this is going to be the real birth of, of gun rights and uh, will probably what be one of the principal things that next term is known for. With respect to abortion, I expect it to be um, quite consequential, but quite beneath the surface. Brett Kavanaugh in abortion cases has really tried to mark out a path that is conservative, but not aggressive. Uh, in terms of narrowing the right to choose and expanding states' rights to adopt abortion restrictions. He has generally supported uh, those kinds of measures uh, and supported uh, uh, statutes and regulations that limit abortion, but has not been pressing, for example, for the overruling of Roe versus Wade. I think both he and the Chief Justice are quite conscious of how the public would view aggressive moves against Roe versus Wade in terms of uh, it may be making the court look, you know, quite political and, and just shifting with the tides of its ideological majority. In terms of religious funding for schools, I would expect the court to be pretty aggressive here. As I mentioned, uh, religion is an area where so far the Rehnquist court before this one and the Roberts court have not made the kind of massive changes that conservatives would like to see uh, in moving away from more liberal uh, doctrines that have high degrees of separation between church and state and more narrowly interpret the right to free exercise. And so I think the court will use the new case on religious funding of schools to make it easier for government to fund uh, religious uh, institutions. In terms of the final one, the affirmative action case where the court called for the views of the Solicitor General, it seemed to me they were just kicking the can down the road so they didn't have to have every hot button issue 
in front of them every, you know, at the same time in one term. And because it's very hard to believe that six conservatives really care what the Biden administration thinks about it from an action. You know, it's not like, oh, wow, you know, what does Joe have to say about this? Um, but uh, it does, it is a bit of a delaying tactic, I think. And the administration will come back surely sometime next term. Uh, the um, Probably when it's uh, close to too late or too late to hear the case next term saying, don't get into this. And the court will get into it, almost certainly. And um, here, I think you have a very solid majority to be quite critical of affirmative action programs. Uh, John Roberts is famously, and we see, you know, echoes of this in the Voting Rights Act context, famously hostile to measures that treat people on the basis of their race, famously believes that we need to have race neutral, race neutral decision making, uh, and has been pretty unhesitant about that. So both with respect to the Voting Rights Act and affirmative action, you know, these are, these are questions he looked at all the way going back to when he was in the Reagan administration. Uh, and so I would expect that to be a place where they eventually, maybe one term later, uh, get involved and, and move the law significantly to the right, limiting affirmative action. You mentioned talking about Brett Kavanaugh and the, the Chief Justice and, and Amy Coney Barrett as, as the possibility of sort of one conservative sort of sub-block. What have we learned so far about the court's newest justice? Well, it is not a ton in the sense that we can hear her in the oral arguments and we can see her opinions. I think that people are extremely impressed, first of all, uh, in terms of her level of preparation, how articulate she is, how incisive she is. And believe me, that's a hard thing to impress people with when you're doing uh, seriatim oral arguments where she's the last to go. Uh, because it's extremely difficult when you're the ninth person uh, to try and you know pick up a thread, cover an issue, make an impact. Um, and so she's made real contributions at oral argument. Her opinions have not tried to be like overly flowery or whatever. She's really trying to be clear, concise, uh, straightforward. Um, so she is, I think, as advertised. Um, she, uh, like Brett Kavanaugh, I think, in terms of the court's um, most recent appointees, uh, is someone who is, you know, solidly conservative, is aware of the ideological cross currents, is aware of the perception of the court, is not trying to seem agenda driven, um, and so you know, I think she's as advertised is uh, is going to be a. a a very, very, very strong uh, justice uh, who won't be known as an ideological warrior. Getting down to the sort of the last, last question. If, uh, you know, as it seems right now when we're recording this on Saturday, it looks like perhaps Justice Stephen Breyer isn't going to retire. Are you surprised? No. Um, you know, the left's concern is a little bit attenuated, and that is during 2021, uh, they could lose the Senate because a senator could die or something like that. And you know, I, you know, anything is possible, but I doubt that was a big motivator. I think he loves the job. I think he feels a certain responsibility as the senior justice on the left with Justice Ginsburg passing away. 
I think he feels like he's very much at the top of his game. And I think efforts to push him out and, you know, really guilt trip him into retiring were stupid. Um, he has written. You don't like the about, truck driving around telling him to retire. Oh worked. my God, these people are like, yeah. And I also think, I mean, yeah. And he also, you know, checks Twitter a lot, I'm sure, for, for what he should do with his, his career and, you know, whether he should leave public service and being a Supreme Court justice. Um, I do think he probably sees a public intellectual life for himself after retirement. So that's not a problem. I think he'll write books and, and that sort of thing. But I think he, he very likely feels that if he were to retire now, it would make, it would look extremely political. It would have been like, I waited for a Democratic president. So now I got it. Now I'm leaving. And even though, to be perfectly honest, that's true of members of the Supreme Court, they really do tend very strongly to uh, retire when they're ideologically aligned with the, with the president. Um, I think that doing it right after the Biden administration came in and right after all of this pressure uh he would felt would look likely feels would look bad, but next term is when it would make a lot of sense for him to retire. And I, I would be shocked if he didn't retire next term, because then you do have the run up to the 22 elections. You do have the realistic prospect of Democrats losing the Senate. Um, and I think he will not want that uh, to be his legacy. He is aware of the consequences of Justice Ginsburg passing away uh, and what it meant for the court to shift to the right. And while he's perfectly aware that it's 6-3 on ideological questions, he's not going to want it to be 7-2 so that the left has no chance of the Supreme Court instead of for 20 years, 40 years. Well, I hope we have, have you back before then, but certainly <laughs> uh, we'll have you back this time next year and we'll, we'll see if your prediction comes true. I, I, I think you're probably right, but we'll find out. Well, if it is, then we will re replay it. And if it's not, then let's just promise to ignore it. Then we'll burn it. All yeah, right. Exactly. Tom Goldstein, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.